is ceremonial at best. Uh, but I want to welcome you all uh, to this great event to celebrate remarkable cities in the security and sovereignty of food and nutrition uh, with our very own Jonathan Rosenblum, who's going to tell us all about the book. But first, we're going to hear from our uh, 19th president and dean, Cinnamon Carlarn. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure as part of today to actually just get to introduce Jonathan, uh, Professor Rosenblum, and his book. So I'm really honored to have the opportunity to do that. Um, so I'm just going to say first a few words about Professor Rosenblum and then turn the floor over. So as many of you know, um, he joined the Albany Law School first in 2021 as a visiting professor, and then uh, formerly last year in 2022. And But I've had the pleasure of knowing Jonathan for much longer, and that is really, truly um, a pleasure. And so to put it simply, uh, Professor Rosenblum is a field leader and just a remarkable human. So he's a nationally renowned scholar, and he's an award-winning teacher in the fields of environmental law, sustainability, and land use. He is, of course, a very top scholar. He's among the top 150 scholars cited among Heimat Online. Uh, but really, his work is very influential, and it's innovative well beyond legal academia. He's the founding uh, executive director of the uh, Sustainable Development Code, a model land use code that's designed to provide local governments with the best sustainability practices in land use. And it's been a really profoundly important contribution to ongoing efforts to create a more just and sustainable society. It also really reflects Professor Rosenblum's ded dedication to, but also his success in marrying scholarly thinking with practical impact and implementation. Um, and, not only is he an amazing scholar, but I just want to say a little bit about what he does here at the law school. Um, he's uh, taken on the role of helping as the director and helping create our new flexible JD program, which is an incredibly pertinent part of who we are moving forward and is really focused on access to legal education. And he's been pivotal in that role. He also created the incredible Parma uh, Study Abroad program, which many of you here, I'm guessing, were part of. And just from the testimonials and everything you've heard about it, it's, you know, it's an educational experience, it's a life-changing experience um, and something that he's put his heart and soul into and really reflects who he is. Um, and so finally, I just kind of want to acknowledge and thank Professor Rosenblum for his persistence and his dedication to finding ways to create a more just, a more sustainable, a more equitable society, really in everything he does. So today, as we launch this book, this wonderful book, um, which is only his most recent and a kind of very long line of contributions to the field, and the second book in the Sustainability Development Code Project. I really want to thank him for his passion, his persistence, and focus, and for all of the really very positive energy, innovative thinking, and dedication he brings to his work, to the law school, and to everything else. So I just want to say congratulations, and I can't wait for your talk, and I'm just so proud to be here at the law school with you. That was exhausting. <laughs> thank you, Ray, for organizing this. Um, and thank you all for, for coming this evening and for being patient with the technology. Um, so millions of people every day, every month, every year suffer from food insecurity. And, and what that means is a variety of things, but two of the most important are, number one, they are not getting enough calories, enough caloric intake. intake. So children and adults just do not have enough to eat in terms of calories. The second thing, though, is that they're also not getting enough nutrition. So they may be getting enough calories, 
but not enough valuable calories that are enough to sustain someone to grow, whether it's mentally or physically and otherwise. So this project was really um, one part of the system that is influencing that food insecurity in the United States. This project, again, is just part of that, right? So the, the, the law and the policy that feeds into the food system in the United States is coming from all different angles, right? Federal, state, local. But again, this project is really just taking on a small piece of that system, local level, but more specifically, land use zoning and development. Um, and so what I thought I'd do is walk through the project here tonight and, and work through it in a couple of different ways, beginning with where did it come from? And in order to talk about where it comes from, it's important to talk about where zoning in the United States comes from and where, what we look like in terms of food insecurity in the United States. Following that, talking about the objectives of the project, you know, based on the zoning and the food security, where are we today and, and sort of what's the point of this project? And that's part two, the objectives. And then three is diving into the details. So what do we have? What is this project? What is this book? What's in there? How do you utilize it? That kind of thing. And then just a couple words about next steps, because this is very much a, a part of a larger project. So in terms of first land use, land use zoning in the United States, uh, many of you probably know that zoning itself, which is the, again, the, the sort of the target of this project, really didn't come to fruition until the late 19th century, early 20th century. Prior to that, land use conflicts were predominantly regulated through nuisance law. And nuisance law, as the students in, in the room may remember, is something along the lines of plaintiff has to show a non-trespassory invasion of another's interest in the use and enjoyment of someone's land. Well, throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century, population in the United States expanded and it changed in two ways. Number one, it grew. But the second thing that you can see in these two charts is that it migrated towards urban centers. So you can see in the bottom crisscrossing here in around 1919, for the first time, there was a majority of the population was in urban centers in the United States. The top chart is showing the population in both the rural areas and in the urban areas. And so as the population increased, we got an expansion in the urban areas, but not so much in the rural population. As that population increased and densified in areas, conflicts became more common and nuisance law became too cumbersome. There were a variety of challenges with it. Number one, nuisance law is just expensive and slow. Right. Every time there was a conflict, someone would have to sue, sue, and that costs money, um, and it's slow, and it's, there's a whole process involved. It's, it's mentally taxing. In addition, damage in a nuisance action has already occurred. Right? So someone has suffered an injury, and now we're trying to rectify it. And then number three, decisions only apply to those specific parties. So you may have a scenario where many people are experiencing the same harm, but every time someone suffers that harm, they have to file a nuisance action. So in response to that, local governments across the country started passing zoning, various forms of it, tinkering around the edges with it. First in Los Angeles, washrooms and laundries were prohibited in neighborhoods in 1904. And then shortly after that, Los Angeles also passed a law which prohibited brick kilns from being in residential areas. And then Little Rock passed a law prohibiting livery stables, horse stables in the downtown area. 
Well, that Los Angeles law concerning brick kilns and the Little Rock law concerning uh, livery stables were challenged, and in 1915, the Supreme Court upheld them. Well, shortly after that, New York City passed the first comprehensive zoning law in the United States. So this was the first law that covered the entire city, the entire jurisdiction of the local government, and it regulated primarily three things, height, bulk, so area of what could be uh, what could be utilized on the site, and then it separated uses by, by it separated uses. So it said residential here, commercial there, industrial over there. That was in 1916. A form of zoning, this kind of three-part zoning was called Euclidean zoning because in a case called Euclid versus Ambler, United States Supreme Court upheld the ability of local governments to pass zoning laws. After Euclid was upheld in 1926, zoning really spread pretty rapidly throughout the United States. So let me talk a little bit later about how in the United States, there's 39,000 local governments. About 30,000 of them have the ability to zone. This is when it all starts permeating into the United States through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Another thing really important about the, the oncoming of zoning and the way it looks still today is that zoning was also born out of desire to segregate and, and discriminate. So in 1910, so six years before New York City passed its law, Baltimore passed a comprehensive zoning law. So it covered the entire city of Baltimore. And it said that black homeowners and renters cannot occupy a house on the same block where the majority of homeowners are white and vice versa. So Baltimore, you can see the, this is from a, the Baltimore newspaper. I don't know if you can read the subtitle there, but it says strange situation led the Oriole city to adopt the most pronounced Jim Crow measure on record. So pretty dramatic use and weaponization of a very new land use tool. Right, a very new tool in the United States. Generally, immediately it's being used to segregate and discriminate. Shortly after Baltimore passed its law, that kind of uh, segregation law was enacted by a number of jurisdictions across the country, including Louisville. Louisville's law was challenged and it went up to the United States Supreme Court and in 1917 in Buchanan versus Warley. The United States Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. Well, there were basically three responses to that from local governments across the country. Number one, they just simply ignored Buchanan versus Warley and they continued to enforce their segregationist law. Birmingham, Alabama had theirs on their books until 1951. Apopka, Florida had theirs on the book until 1968 and they continued to enforce it. The second is that some local governments tried to portray Buchanan versus Warley as something that was directed at property rights. And so they figured they could circumvent Buchanan versus Warley by focusing on planning, which those of you familiar with comprehensive plans don't, according to the people who are trying to uh, pass this, do not directly implicate people's property rights. That was ultimately overturned by the United States Supreme Court in the 1970s. But the third way that local governments addressed or sought to circumvent Buchanan versus Warley, which is probably the most important for purposes of zoning codes today and the most important for this project, 
is that many local governments sought about passing facially neutral provisions that have a disproportionate impact based on race. The Supreme Court had uh, set a very high bar for trying to challenge these through Washington versus Davis, Arlington Heights, and personal administrator of Massachusetts versus Feeney. So that's kind of the, the landscape of zoning in the United States today. And we'll talk about how that stuff is still in existence. But what I also want to get out as a foundational piece is what food insecurity in the United States looks like today. So as I mentioned at the very beginning, millions of people suffer from food insecurity. Um, you can see one study from 2001 indicated that 29 million adults and 13 million children lived in a food insecure area. Food insecurity is, designed, is defined by a, a number of, in a number of different ways. One of the more common ones is on the screen here. It says limited access to a variety of healthy and affordable food that often means living within a mile and not having a car. In, additional, in addition, rather, food swamps are neighborhoods where fast food and junk food inundate healthy alternatives. So in the United States, uh, food insecurity is uh, not something that is concentrated in a particular area. It is spread across the United States, but it's also not equal in the way it's shared geographically, but also among race and ethnicity. So the first chart you see up here shows that food insecurity, which is that medium tan color, uh, is at the average in the medium tan color, which is about 10%, 10.4% of the population in the United States. So that means that one in 10 people in the United States suffer from food insecurity. But the higher average of those, some of the states that really suffer from food insecurity are in those Southern states. And I wanna, point your attention to Mississippi, which is a food insecure area above US average, and West Virginia, which is also a food insecure area above the US average. We're gonna come back to them in just a moment. But first I wanna show also food insecurity uh, divided by race or ethnicity by a percentage of households with children. And you can see that black, non-Hispanic, and Hispanic run a higher percentage of households with children that are food insecure in the United States. The darker line there are all households and the black and the orange are, I'm sorry, the blue and the orange are black, non-Hispanic and Hispanic, which are riding above the national average. And then white and other non-Hispanic are running below the national average. In addition to food insecurity in the United States, we are seeing an increased prevalence of obesity and severe obesity. This chart on the screen is showing a 19 year span in which you can see a fairly steady increase in obesity and severe obesity in the United States. Also not equally experienced, this is a chart, uh, rather a map of the United States showing where more severe obesity rates are. And here you can see 35.1% in Mississippi and West Virginia. Remember, those are areas that are also suffering some of the highest food insecure areas. Now, there's some overlap there. For example, as part of this, I, I found a, um, a, a study that was from the United Nations indicating that between 20% and 35% of children across the world that are five years old and under that die die from malnutrition. 
Um, and then I also found some statistics indicating that one in three food insecure individuals are also obese. So thinking about the, 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 the sort of the, the overlap between these areas, I think is also an important part of this. Another thing on this that I think is also important to note is 43% of the states with adult obesity rates of at least 25%. Now that has all sorts of impacts on health, right? And, and, and there's a number of studies that connect uh, food insecurity and access to, to healthy food, nutrition food, to a variety of key health determinants. I'm just gonna show some that are in the book, but there are a lot others uh, that are also impacted by race and ethnicity. Um, so here, this is showing percentage of the population by ethnicity uh, of diabetes. Black and Hispanic are in excess of 23%, white 13%, Korean 18.4%. Life expectancy at birth, um, white, 78.8. Uh, this is 19, uh, 2019, and the lighter green is 2020, 78 years, compared to black, 74.7 and 72 years. And then the last chart I'll show um, is infant mortality rates by race and ethnicity. Again, there's a, there's a, 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 a there's a bunch of studies that, again, are indicating this, this notion that the younger you are, the more you're affected in terms of your health by food insecurity and malnutrition. Um, so here we have uh, non-Hispanic Black, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, American Indian or Alaska, uh, Alaska Native, having uh, infant mortality rates that are quite a bit higher than Hispanic, non-Hispanic, White, and Asian. So when we were looking at, or, or when I was going through and looking at what are the tools available to us? What does the world look like in terms of food security? Uh, this project was designed to take advantage of how zoning codes, how we use land affects food insecurity and sovereignty. And so there are three primary objectives of this project. Number one, to modernize codes. And so many of the codes that we have in our cities are still from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, they are not designed to address food insecurity or sovereignty, at least the way that we understand these issues today and the challenges that have come up with highly processed food, fast food, and other things today. So modernizing zoning codes. Number two, leveraging the joint work of thousands of local governments. As I mentioned, 30,000 local governments are zoning. There's no reason to recreate the wheel 30,000 times. If someone is doing something that is working in one jurisdiction, how do we share that information so others can as well? And so that was part of this project as well. And then finally, moving to a stronger, more sustainable, equitable, and resilient food system was the other core objective of this. So I'm gonna go into the details of the, the book and the project. Now, there's three ways in which you can access the information in the book. And so I'll walk through that. But first, I just wanted to kind of give you a sense of, uh, who was part of this book? Because this book was very much a true collaboration. Thinking about, again, if we have 30,000 zoning codes and some zoning codes, someone, I was working with a, a local government, talking with a local government about zoning uh, the other day, and their zoning code was 800 pages long, right? That's one zoning code, right? And I'm not, I'm not particularly good at math, but I know that 800 times 30,000 is a lot. It's a <laughs> lot of reading, right? So, so we had a lot of people working on this, right? So. We had dozens of students from seven law schools, including Albany Law School, 
We had practitioners from Colorado to New York to Arizona, Florida, and others. We had academic experts from Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Illinois, New York, including our own Professor Hirokawa. Um, the result from this process was 41 recommendations to increase food security and sovereignty across the development code. So we looked at the development process from the very beginning to the very end and asked, how do all these little pieces of the development process impact the food system? And how can we address those? How can we change them? And we, as I, as I just mentioned, we identified 41 places where we can make some alterations, some changes. Those 41 recommendations are supported by over 250 local government ordinances that are existing from Oregon to Maine, from Arizona to Florida, and they range in size from several hundred thousand, the population of these local governments, to a couple hundred citizens. So now I'm going to go into the, the book itself. And as I said, there's three different ways to, to utilize the book. Um, and so I'll actually be interested to see how people are, are using it um, or how they will use it. But we thought that variety, depending on how you're approaching your zoning code, you may want to address it one way or another. The first is how the table of contents is set up. And that's to number one off on the left here, remove code barriers. The idea with this is what in your existing code is stopping you from creating a more secure food system, uh, food sovereignty, creating a, a food system in which your people have a say in it. What's stopping you from doing that? Let's identify those and let's remove those barriers. The second, which is the middle here, is create incentives. How can we incentivize homeowners, developers to take a variety of actions to support the local food system? So create incentives. If that's the carrot, this middle road is the carrot, create incentives, then we might think of this as the stick. So where will we draw an absolute minimum as a community when it comes to food security and sovereignty and development, right? Because again, this is all about development. This is about making a new subdivision or, or renovating something, right? How can we integrate food security and sovereignty into that process? So examples here, remove code barriers. The top one says bees in urban and suburban districts. And what that means is that many codes prohibit bees from being utilized for purposes of harvesting honey and other things. Um, and so allowing that to happen. Now, obviously not all of these are appropriate for every jurisdiction, but things like that, or, or for example, another one is to allow aquaponics, hydroponics and aquaculture in a number of jurisdictions. Create incentives. How can we incentivize the top one there, grocery store developments and recognized food deserts? So what tools do we have as a local government to incentivize these grocery stores to come to these areas. And then fill regulatory gaps. An example over here I've highlighted is limit density of dollar and small box discount stores in food deserts. So the, the issue here with these is that they have highly processed food. They're also very inexpensive and they can price out some of the more healthy options. So what a number of local governments have done is to either prohibit them at large or prohibit them from being a certain radius from each other, or requiring them to have a certain amount of square footage dedicated to fresh foods, uh, fruits and vegetables, and other things. So that's one way, 
remove code barriers, create incentives, fill regulatory gaps. Another way that we've organized the book in the back is by geography. So for example, what I've pulled out here are all the cities and towns in the state of New York that we've extracted an ordinance from. We have East Hampton, Farmington, New Rochelle, New York City, Rome, Southampton, and Washington. Um, and so this we thought would be helpful for some local governments who are really interested in seeing what uh, folks in their state have done. That's the second way. The last way that we've organized the book or have organized the book is also in the appendix, which is by subject matter. So if a local government, for example, wanted to increase on-site productivity, so allow homeowners to grow on their own land, that's a, there's a bunch of different recommendations for that. If, we, if the local government wanted to allow on-site commercial activity, so allow people not only to grow fruits and vegetables, but to sell them or to have honey or, or have bees and sell the honey, um, which is often prohibited. The third way is offsite access to nutritious food. So how do we create a scenario, create a community where people can find and purchase fresh fruits and vegetables or nutritious food? And then finally, protect agricultural lands in our jurisdiction. So I'm just gonna quickly kind of just show you some of these just to give you a sense. So when we talk about on-site productivity, we again have the situation with bees. Right? I have a lot of words up here. You don't have to, I'm not suggesting you read them, but it's to reflect the recommendations that are in the site. So in terms of on-site productivity, you see up there bees, you see up there again, aquaponics, but also edible front yards, right? Many local governments prohibit people from having gardens in their front yards. Um, they prohibited them from keeping fowl, from keeping uh, chickens, from growing fruit trees are prohibited in many jurisdictions. So allowing those things so that people can actually grow these, this, this food and they can eat it. Related to that is increasing the availability of on-site commercial activity. So here we have a couple different, we have only four recommendations in this area, but they are allowing farmers markets in a variety of districts by right, allowing temporary farm stands. So allowing people that are growing fruits and vegetables in their backyard to actually sell them allow commercial sales of food produced on site in urban suburban areas, and then permit the display and sale of fruits and vegetables in public sidewalks. Again, many local governments prohibit any kind of selling of fruits and vegetables on the sidewalk. The third way in which we've characterized these is off-site access to nutritious food. So now we're moving off of the person's individual lot, but figuring out ways in which we can create a community where there's access to nutritious food. So prohibit or limit the use of drive-through services, limit the density of uh, the dollar stores and small box, which we talked about, incentivize grocery store development and recognize food deserts, and incentivize grocery store and infill. Infill is when we have an abandoned lot or a vacant lot um, in a dense area, and trying to figure out a way to get a grocery store to move there. Finally, again, a ton of stuff um, on, this, on this slide. And this is about protecting agricultural lands. I highlighted two here because I think they're more relevant to the urban areas. There's a couple are, that are relevant, but these two I think are particularly relevant and also particularly interesting, I think. And that's number one, permit, permit rather commercial agricultural activities in urban and suburban areas. 
So this is not just allowing these things to happen, but larger agricultural processes allowing those to happen. So not just I can have a garden, maybe I can sell some fruits and vegetables, but maybe allow a commodity to be grown uh, in an urban and suburban area. And then the second, uh, the second from the top one up here, agrarian trusts and right of first refusal. This by the way, was drafted by Martin Michaels. I don't know if any of you remember Martin, he was a student here, uh, graduated just a couple of years ago, uh, but he was the principal author of that one. It's a fabulous brief. And it's about trying to figure out a way to build food sovereignty in the area to bring control over food growth and production and transportation um, and doing that through agrarian trust and the right of first refusal. So in closing here, I just have two quick slides. Uh, the first one here is just highlighting this idea that the zoning code issues that are in this book are part of a larger system and that we can support the food system, the local food system in a variety of ways that go beyond directly addressing food security and sovereignty as those recommendations in the book. And that is by, for example, growing green spaces, looking at the tree canopy cover, open space um, ordinances, green roofing, pervious cover. This is a way to not only create a culture of supporting flora and vegetation, but also to increase pollinators in the area to facilitate the growth of the food system. And then, as I said, the last thing I want to mention here is just next steps. So this, this project is part of a, a larger project. It's the second book in a series. The first one was about remarkable cities and climate change. Uh, this is an ongoing project we have with the Environmental Law Institute as the publisher of it. And um, the next one we're talking about is either going to be environmental justice or um, wildlife and habitats. So we'll see where we go. Um, but with that, I, I wanna thank Ray and the Dean and Albany Law School and you all for coming here tonight. Thanks. Yes, uh, welcome questions, comments, anything. Yeah, hi. You're on. Yeah. So I feel like there's a big link between what you were getting at and worse race and traditional family traditional household. Yeah, it's super. What's your name? Leonard. Leonard, super interesting issue. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting, just a, a, as a sort of aside to support your point or, or to, to kind of um, move on your point, is that it's also interesting to think about how that evolves into a food security issue, right? Like if there is a disparity, why is that? What's happening there? And is it, is it an income-based issue? Is it a support issue? Is it a time issue? Is it a resource issue? So the short answer for us is we haven't looked into it. Um, I'm, I, I feel confident that there's probably some information out there about it, uh, but I also feel like it's probably a really great thing to think about. Now, how that would play out in land use, I think, is also an interesting thing to think about, but we just haven't gone down that road yet. Super interesting.
What's uh, the main thing for all of it? What would you think is the, mm -hmm. is the first thing that we should do in City Hall? Well, it, so. Some of which you probably already went about. <laughs> no, as, as some of my students will know, um, or expect me to, to acknowledge and say in this point is that, you know, some of the best things that Albany can be doing is not controlled by Albany. And what I mean by that is Albany is in the situation that Albany is in, in terms of food security and sovereignty in major part or, or in significant part because of the way the suburbs have evolved and the way the demographics in the, in the, the region have evolved. So given that though, um, you know, that would mean that the suburban areas would need to take a variety of actions. But if we look at just the city of Albany, what the city of Albany can do, I think there's some really interesting opportunities around, for example, agrarian trusts and vacant land. So we have an enormous amount of vacant land in the city, right? And so starting to think about, can we convert some of that vacant land into ownership by the people who live in that area? for purposes of developing some form of garden that we can you know, utilize, but also potentially utilize for purposes of selling. Maybe you know, make, some, make some money off um, what is sold and support the, the neighborhood as well in doing so. I think that's a big part. The other thing is I think an infill, you know, a focus on trying to, again, focus on these vacant lands in a way that can bring in some supportive outside partners. Um, of course, it would be fantastic, right, if it wasn't like a um, uh, an Acme, let's say, which would be fine, right, or, or uh, what, what, why am I, Aldi, like an Aldi, right, which would also be fine, right, but what would be even better, right, if it were a, a grocery store that was locally owned, right, that was run by the people, um, that's sort of the, the striving point. But I, I think for Albany, focusing on those vacant lands through either of those mechanisms would be a good start. Yeah. Hey, Jason. Uh, so I know we're talking a lot about local government, local government responsibility in any federal government, the USDA or the Department of Agriculture. Uh, well, let me answer it with one word first, and then we'll we'll try to expand on it. But huge, right? I mean, they have a huge responsibility, and they have a huge amount of resources that they could utilize. Uh, for these purposes. I mean, you may remember that um, the first lady, uh, Michelle Obama, she was very much focused on food nutrition in schools. Uh, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, this, the food in schools was horrible, right? I mean, your, your classic sort of sloppy Joe was what we got pretty much every day. Um, and so there have been evolutions on that front. And much of that is, is directed by state and federal governments. I mean, local governments too. Uh, but the federal government specifically to this project, I think can support it, right? And it can support it in a way which would help disperse the information, but also help local governments adapt and adopt these ordinances. I mean, if we think about, th think about this for a moment, as I said, there's about 39,000 local governments, right? By the time we get to 200, the 200th largest city, we're at about 200,000 in population. By the time we get to 400, the 400th largest city, we're at about 70,000 or 60,000, right? By the time you get to like 2,000, 
you're at a pretty small local government. So for the last 30,000 of them, they're very small local governments. And what are they focused on? Well, they're focused on police, fire, libraries, maybe schools, right? So this is gonna fall through the cracks. They don't have the resources to do this. So the federal government could really help with those smaller local governments. Yes. I missed, I think, a key word in what you said. You said, isn't it all well, about... One, yeah, <laughs> but it was, isn't it all about... And then I missed it. It was at the very beginning. What was it? Oh, subsidies. That Yes. Okay, so yes. It, it... Okay, so this is a huge challenge, right? I mean, if we go in places like Iowa, for example, right, you have three crops essentially, right? That are being grown um, across the Midwest in places like Iowa and other places. Um, yes, we have commoditized agricultural land. We have commoditized food in the United States. It's no longer about getting nutrition and making sure that people have what they need. It's about making money, right? And so there are many um, studies and many, and many charts that show decreasing number of farmers in the United States, increasing number of acreage per farm in the United States, decreasing number of diversity of what's grown on farms in the United States. Um, all of these are a huge problem because like you said, what that requires then is for us to obtain that food from somewhere else. Um, yeah, and, and I don't remember the number, maybe Keith or, or Cinnamon, you remember, but a, uh, your average plate of food travels, is it a thousand miles to get to the plate? It's huge, it's an incredible amount of mileage to get, again, every meal in the United States travels that average to get to us. And, and you know, if we think about that as a cost, could we reallocate that cost into something that develops the local food system? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Pam and then Keith. There are farms that are not farms that are garden stands, community gardens. The guy two houses down has got some boats and a bunch of chickens. And the other end, a lot of green foods. And nobody's making any money yet. Are tired of having folks come by and swipe their gardens Donovan. Where's the where your book is the mechanism to sustain what you're asking people to do in order to be providers, if you will, in this community? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I mean, so there, there's a couple answers and responses to it. I mean, first. To be clear, right, the intent of this project is not to force anyone to do anything, right? It's the opposite, right? It's that if a community wants to develop the local food system, here are the things that are in your code that's stopping you from doing it, and here's a way to incentivize it, right? That's part. But then to your actual question, you know, what is in here to help create that? So 
Yeah, to sustain it, exactly. I'm just gonna back up a couple slides because I wanna show one immediately that comes to mind is the, um, oh, where is that ecotourism? We have, um, oh, there it is, a C on the list up here. Special use permits for agritourism, uh, agritourism on farms. So what this is, is to sort of help uh, local farmers and farms sustain that farm in a way that they can diversify their income, right? And so opening up to whether it's concerts or, or coming to, to stay there as a, as a hotel or a bed and breakfast, that kind of thing, which is often prohibited in agricultural plants. So that's one of the ways. And I think the other is to reduce the costs that are associated with having to go through an expensive process to do something that you want to do. Yeah, that said, um, you know, I just want to note one more thing about that is that there is this question of how do you maintain anything, right? Um, and, and particularly anything where the predominant law here, zoning law, is overwhelmingly pushing you the opposite way, right? And so, you know, we're trying to make changes so that it creates an atmosphere that you can do this and you can sustain it. Yeah, yeah, uh, sorry, I, I promised Keith first, Tom, yeah. <laughs> and this is a hard question and I'm gonna go right to Tom. <laughs> I'll go to Tom, oh no. Go ahead, Tom, he's deferred to you. Um, um, as you're pushing the less expensive, less nutritious options out of the area, is there any concern that as Options to limit your raising to the cost of calorie. Mm -hmm. High and so high that you're really icing people out of coming all together, or they can afford their resources. Farmers market's great. Trying to feed a family of four at the farmer's market is going to cost you several times more than what you have local knowledge. Yes, better food, but probably not the most there. Yeah, huge, huge challenge, huge problem. So there's a, one of the things that we were very conscious about this entire book project was for us, we had characterized it slightly differently, although this is part of it, um, was gentrification, right? The idea that once we start to promote a local food system, are we suddenly creating an atmosphere that will displace the people who live there um, for, because of higher, higher rents, higher costs of property values, higher property tax, and people have to move out and this kind of thing. So some of the things that we've tried to embed in here are about maintaining those property rights. Now we don't have things, we don't have, um, um, we do in a different section on the sustainable development code in what's called the social justice chapter. We do have recommendations that pertain to directly um, combating gentrification. But here in this one, we have things like um, the agrarian trust, right? The idea with the agrarian trust is to give ownership, is to give property rights, is to have control over those property rights in a way that can help combat owner, help combat gentrification. Um, the other thing that I think is important about your point, Tom, is that yes, farmers markets, the way that we kind of structure many of them now um, are too expensive or, or potentially inaccessible, right? And I was talking with a, a student that, uh, that Rosemary and I are actually working with. Um, he is working on a project that is looking at 
how farmers markets can be can sort of double as food pantries, right? With the idea that, you know, many of these farmers markets, again, are for a certain segment of the population, but how do we diversify, right? So that's the kind of stuff that I think is really important for land use codes. Yeah, thank you. Did that, that answer your question too? <laughs> it seems like also looking at the state really say you're in a state, now there should be things to be there. You start to say things are subject to performance standards and currency. That'd be super interesting. I think it would also be really important, right? It would be a way to address these issues in a much more wholesale way, right? And and because when we think about so so the question, if you couldn't hear in the back, was you know is there a way that the state can play a role here? And, and Professor Hirakawa had raised uh, the Dillon's Rule state. And for those of you unfamiliar, Dillon's Rule just basically means that local governments have no authority unless the state says they explicitly have that authority to do something. And, and so what I think is you know, interesting, first of all, it's a huge challenge with this project generally, right? Because what we're trying to do is share information among local governments that are in all 50 states. And all 50 states, not all of them, but many of them have differing ways in which they deal with home rule, Dillon's rule. And so, you know, when we, you know, when we kind of work with local governments on these issues, we talk about how, well, you have to make sure you have the local authority to do so. But we could circumvent that whole problem, right? If the state of New York decided to say, we are empowering any local government that wants to and supporting them with incentives to develop an agrarian trust for purposes of creating uh, a supermarket on vacant land. And we'll support that measure and doing it in all sorts of ways. That would, I mean, that would be huge, huge for a city like Albany, for example. Yeah, I love it. Acquiring it would be even better, right? Especially if they paid for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, sir. I mean, taking up all that, but yeah, putting life back Yes, yeah, we have a couple that focus specifically on soils. Um, in fact, I don't know if you met, but, but Professor Hirakawa was on one of these. Um, it was the soil compaction one, I think, which just pertained to um, once we move out into the sort of urban rural boundaries that any construction out there has to be done in a way that doesn't compact the, the agricultural soil so they can be utilized for purposes, right? Um, but I think you know, your point is an excellent one because it also raises, when we get into a place like Albany, and this was a challenge that we faced throughout this book as well, is you know, how do you put a community garden on a place that very well may be a brownfield site? Or if it's not an official brownfield site, if you do testing, there's going to be all sorts of stuff in there that you don't want ending up in vegetables, right? Yeah, so it's, and that, I mean, you know, that again leads us into state and federal issues and 
So there's all sorts of, that's what I was saying at the very beginning, right? There's a system of laws. This is one slice of it. And, and you really need to address it at a variety of places. But I, I love the issue of the soil because you know, without the soil, we're not gonna get anywhere, right? And, and, and there has been, for, you know, for decades, there's just been this, you know, we ignore it and we ignore it in a way which it either washes out into the streams or we pollute it um, or we compact it, uh, but we don't respect it in a way that's gonna result in food. Excellent. Excellent. Hi. Uh, yeah. And then. Right. You have to make this the last question. I'm sorry, John. No, that's time wise. That's all right. No, I'm, I, keep thinking, I keep thinking. I keep thinking of what's what's waiting down there. Right? I would love exactly. it. I would love a drink. We have a few. Little, we have a few little things to do before we before we close. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, there was a, a community garden uh, that we were working on that had exactly that. They they had raised beds. The other what was the other place that I, I saw that was an interesting example of um oh it was clay soil. That the that so it was a it was a it was a vacant lot, but it, it wasn't polluted in any well, it wasn't polluted enough. But the real problem was that uh, it was uh, clay soil. So they did raise beds again. Yeah, great, great. Well, thank you. Your thoughts on characters like Bill Gates purchasing up the majority of farmland and taking the mRNA and modifying it? It was interesting. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, one thing I mean, I think is, is hugely problematic about it. Is that we continue to consolidate land in in, in smaller groups of people? That was I, I don't remember the numbers, you, but it wasn't in excess of two hundred thousand acres. Two hundred thousand acres. He was majority of farmland in America. Oh, that's well in excess. I I must have been looking at a um, a particular state or two um, because you know, we have well in excess of two hundred thousand acres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know we we. It, it's sort of continuing what we were talking about earlier about the commoditization of farming. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You can see the screen. I hope this is going to work. I'm, I'm hoping this is going to work. I think it's going to work. So we have uh, some congratulatory notes. First, from uh, Jordan Diamond, uh, the executive director of the Environmental Law Institute. Is that right? Um, it's not on the screen, Ben. Am I supposed to do something? Probably. Hold on a second. Close that out. There should be a, uh... a voice. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, all right. Nope. Watch media player. Ben, you out there? So I think we found it. 
Yep. I see that. Um, I'm sorry about this, folks. It's not. Tom, do you have any thoughts? Share screen. We lost it. Give word sign. Ben, do you want to try it again? Do that. Just grab the one up here. Is you sure? Hi, I'm Jordan Diamond, president of the Environmental Law Institute, which has been making law work for people, places, and the planet since our founding over 50 years ago. Be it working on the ground with communities and stakeholders, convening diverse groups to find consensus and solutions, or disseminating new ideas and legal approaches via our various publications, our dedicated staff advances in-depth research to promote good governance, environmental sustainability, and a just rule of law. When Jonathan Rosenblum approached us back in 2019 and told us how he was helping communities prepare for uncertainty by offering best practices for community development via the Sustainability Development Code, our publications department jumped at the chance to showcase some of his work. Many development codes are decades old and were not designed to confront today's challenges. But thanks to Professor Rosenblum, the Sustainability Development Code helps all local governments, regardless of size and budget, build more resilient, environmentally conscious, economically secure, and socially equitable communities. This is exactly the type of work ELI wants to help disseminate, and we're honored to have played a role in this impactful project. The first volume, Remarkable Cities in the Fight Against Climate Change, provides local governments with a diversity of approaches to meet the climate change challenge, focusing on actions that are traditionally within local government's land use and development authorities. In his second book, Remarkable Cities and the Security and Sovereignty of Food and Nutrition, Professor Rosenblum takes the same approach, providing more than 40 recommendations that local governments can use to help their communities foster a strong, inclusive, affordable, accessible, and healthy foodie system. The book explains how development codes impact the food system and how these codes can be better designed to create healthier communities. It provides dozens of best rec practice recommendations supported by dozens of enacted ordinances, which I'm sure many will be discussed today. I hope you have a chance to check out the book, as well as the Sustainability Development Code, and share it across your networks and communities. It's a wonderful resource and one that has the potential to transform our cities for the benefit of all future generations. So thank you to Professor Rosenblum for creating this resource. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to me today. And I hope you have a wonderful conversation. That's about all you get. All right, Ben, let her rip. Next one up, we have a congratulatory note from Senator Schumer. Um, you can all read it up there, but I think the best, um, then we can make it a little bigger. Here we go. Um, not that big. <laughs> That's that big. 
Congratulations, Jonathan. And let's all celebrate downstairs.